chapter 1 this morning. As you are finding your way to Colossians 1, um, there's a story of a couple of guys who were having a conversation, and as the conversation went, one of the friends looked to his buddy and he said, how did your Saturday go? I was really interested to hear how it went. And the gentleman looks at his friend and he's like, mm, it's pretty good. It was a pretty good day. Got some, some stuff accomplished. It was a pretty day. And as he was giving his answer to his friend, the, the friend was looking at him just kind of like expecting a little bit more of details and maybe some excitement. And so the guy started adding a little bit to his day. He said, oh, well, well you know, uh, I had the opportunity to to go outside and mow. I made some straight lines. Yards look, yard, yard looks really pretty. Uh, I was able to go into the flower bed and, and, you know, get some of the weeds out and take care of that. And, um, and then I had the opportunity to be able to, you know, kind of get cleaned up. And then uh, I went to dinner and I went to a movie and, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was a pretty good day. That movie was really good. You should go see it. Highly recommend it. And his friend just looks at him and he's like, but dude, how was your date? He misses the point. He misses the point of the entire day, that there was a date to be had with a beautiful woman, and instead his focus is on all the other things. He gets distracted. He misses the main point of the day. It wasn't the fact that you mowed. It wasn't the fact that you got to clean out the flower bed. It wasn't the fact that you got to go watch a movie and have dinner. It was, who did you spend that day with? And often for us in the life of the church, if we're not careful, we miss the point. We miss the point of even why we are here, let alone why we are on this earth, of what it is that we are to accomplish and who it is that we are to give our devotion to. And this is a passage in Colossians where Paul is coming to a point where he really wants to kind of address some of the issues that need to be addressed in the life of this church and within this community. For the first several verses of this book, he's been talking about how grateful he is for this church family and the fact that they have heard the gospel, they have understood the gospel, they have placed their faith in Jesus, the focus of the gospel. He prayed for them, as we saw last week, that they would know the will of God with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Like He loves these people because as he's in chains writing this letter to them, his friend that he's met before, Epaphras, comes to him and lets him know how the church is doing, but there's one underlying issue that continues to be a problem within the church of Colossae, is that there are a group of people who are saying, you know what, you are missing the point, there's something else that you need besides Jesus. You need Jesus plus something in order for you to have a fulfilled life, an improved life, for you to kind of take that next step in, in what it is to really be enlightened or to know the things of God. You need to throw a little bit of a, maybe asceticism or legalism or some Jewish traditions or some Greek philosophy. If you sprinkle that in a little bit, then you're really going to kind of get to where you need to be in advancing uh, in this life for, for the Lord, for God. And what Paul wants to do is he kind of finishes this introduction that we saw last week is he launches into this beautiful sentiment of coming back to, let's get back to the main thing. Let's not miss the point, and this is Jesus. And I would love to tell you that this morning I'm going to give you some information and I'm going to say, here's the application, go, do. But today's not about you. Today's about Jesus. Today's about the application for you is just to hear the word, receive the word, and let's lift our gaze and focus on Him. And I know that sometimes we want to walk away from a time like this and go, feed me, improve my life, give me some cute little anecdotes that I can take with. And we get that from time to time. But today is not that day. Today's a day where we fix our gaze upon Him and we see Him in His majesty, His grandeur, and His glory. And because we see Jesus, we're moved. 
were changed. So listen, follow along. Colossians chapter 1. This is, uh, this is one of the, the big, what we call Christological passages of the Bible. Colossians 1 verse 15. He, referring to Jesus from context in the previous verses, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If you're taking notes, it's just really simple. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning, Lord, that for every individual in this room or anyone that's joining us online this morning, that this morning we would, we would get a glimpse, gather a greater understanding of the grandeur of Jesus. And if you would, where you're at right now, would you just pray that you, with all the stuff on your mind and on your heart, that you would just set that aside for just a moment and just ask God, God, help me to get a better glimpse of Jesus. And if you would, would you pray for me that I would clearly articulate this truth today? Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I do, I ask you this morning, why have you, why have you come here today? Why, why are you here? Why do you come here for many of you week after week? Why, why is this something that you would choose to give of your time? Is it... Is it out of tradition? Tradition is not a bad thing. Is it, is it out of discipline? Discipline is not a bad thing. But my, my hope is that today is that we have an opportunity to, to go beyond some of that. Uh, I, I've heard in years past of, of people who, when they've come to church, uh, together as the church, to hear the Word of God, to worship together, there's a few responses that I've received, and there's so many more, but some people will say, I want, I want to improve, I want to mature, I want to grow in my faith, and that's a great thing. I want to maybe feel or experience peace. My life is just chaotic right now, like there's depression, there's anxiety, and I know if I could hear a word from the Lord um, in just this unique setting that we can have as a, as a corporate group, that that's just, that's just something I would like, or maybe it's, I, I come here to be fed. And again, in and of themselves, those things are not bad, but what I have to offer you this morning is what I believe Paul has to offer to the church of Colossae, is, is yes, I believe that you can experience maturity, and you can be fed, and you can experience a peace, but what I have to offer you is not peace, maturity, or food. I have, what I have to offer you is Jesus, in Him alone. And I believe that's what Paul is wanting to focus on. Many believe that when Paul 
launches into verse 15, he's actually, this was a, maybe a song or a hymn that was actually being passed around from churches as to a correct uh, theology or understanding of who Jesus is, so that way by song we could kind of memorize and know who is He and, and how we can be familiar to Him, if, if not a song, at least, at least almost a poem. And so when it comes to Jesus, Paul wants to be explicitly clear that I'm not saying that Jesus is just a great man or a great teacher or some kind of moral philosopher. It's beyond that. And, and that's even true today. We can walk up and down the streets of your neighborhood and we can knock on doors here in Bible Belt America where most people would say, I believe in God. But if we got to ask the question of, tell me who Jesus is, that's a different conversation altogether. And even for you, I wonder if I was to ask the question uh, in the same way that Christ asked the question to his, to his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? And they're like, oh, you're this great prophet, or you're, you're, you're uh, Elijah reborn, you're Jeremiah, you're, you're, you're just this great figure. And it's, that's what the people are saying, but Jesus looks to his followers, his closest friends, and he says, okay, that's who they say I am, but, but more personally, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's different than a prophet. It's different than a good teacher. It's different than someone who's just giving some great moral philosophical ideas. He's more than that. Someone I'm going to reference a few times this morning is, is a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. Many of you might know who he is. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Abolition of Man, uh, Screw Tape Letter, so many different things. Read them. He's good. He's got good stuff. But one of the things that has been familiar with him of something that he has written before is this idea that if you're going to take Jesus and who he is, he said either Jesus Christ was a liar, a lunatic, or he is exactly who he says he is, and he is Lord. You can't kind of just go wishy-washy with Jesus. I know of individuals who will come along and, and they will say, even in other faiths and other religions, that they will say, Jesus is a great prophet. But he's so much more than that. And I want us to see through Scripture just who Jesus is. And yes, going into this, you might say, well, why does this matter? And I would just let you know that sometimes in the life of the church, in my lifetime, there's almost been a pulling away from going into the deep theological waters of Scripture because we want everything to be very palatable and something that's kind of on the surface that shimmers and shines so that way I can take it with me and I got this cute little phrase that I can slap up on my, my, my refrigerator. And I want us to take us to the deep in order to know because when we get deep, that's when we know we can begin to navigate the waters of this life. And here's the, just the truth of the matter. The depth of your theology determines the conduct of your life. It just does. If you're surfacy with the things of God, the study of God, the person of God, the view of God, your understanding of God, then that's going to uh, directly affect the way in which you live and conduct your life. And so today, yes, we're, it, it almost feels like we're going to go into a little bit of a systematic theology class. We're not, but we're, we're going to need to take a look at the depth of the theology that Paul is presenting here. And for us to not shy away from that or even hear that word theology, and some of you might even say, I'm not, that's not for me. I'm not going to seminary. I'm not going to Bible college all of you are a theologian. Every single one of you believes something about God and about Jesus. Therefore, you are a theologian. An atheist is a theologian because they have things to think about God. An agnostic is a theologian, whether they want to admit it or not, because you believe something about God. All of you are a theologian, but what is the depth of that theology? 
And what you understand about God, man, it, it, it determines everything. And so, because Jesus is everything, let's take a look at Jesus. Now, I don't want to frighten you. I told Tiffany this before I left this morning, and I said, I have eight points today. And she said, ha, ha, good luck. So, I hope you brought a pack, uh, brown paper bag and with some lunch in it, because uh, we got eight points, but we're going to go through them as quickly but as thoroughly as possible. Number one, and I would encourage you today, just mark, mark up your Bible like crazy, or at least get a piece of paper, because these are things that I want you to take into your life next week and next year, because this is a truth that is just unwavering that you need to have in your life. So get ready to mark up your Bible or get a piece of paper in the back that has been so kindly given to us by Faye and Henry with sermon notes on it, because you need to write some of this stuff down. Number one, Jesus is the image of God. That's in verse 15. We're just going bit by bit. Again, like last week, you could read these verses and go, that's just a jumble up of words, Paul. What are you saying? And we're going to break it down bit by bit. Jesus is the image of God. Literally, that word image is the word in the Greek uh, icon. Jesus is the icon. Jesus is the representation of God. When you want to see God, you look to Jesus. I, I didn't bring it with me because I completely forgot, but I want you to imagine this idea of when you take a, a coin, like a quarter and you see that image of George Washington on the back. What is it, an eagle? I'm pretty sure it's an eagle on a quarter. Am I wrong? Am I right on that? Thank you, Titus. Thank you. The rest of you adults are just like, well, I don't know. Titus knows. Thank you, Titus. And what they're doing is they're taking that image of that eagle or that, that image of Washington, and they're imprinting that on there, making that image a stamp, a, a representation, an exact representation of that eagle or of that, of that individual. They would do this in this day and time when there were coins. If you would look in the time of Alexander the Great, there were coins of a stamped image of a coin of Alexander the Great with his image on there, with his diadem wrapped around his head, and you would say, that is a coin of Alexander the Great. That's his representation. This is that icon. Jesus is the icon. Now, I specifically did not put these on the screen this morning because sometimes we get lazy with that, and I don't want you to get lazy with that. I want you to get good at this. And so I want you to write down in your notes three other passages of Scripture. And yes, we're going to read them. So, Andrew, not to make you nervous, they're not going to be on the screen, and that's on purpose. In the margin of your Bible, I told you just a moment ago before we read this, that this is one of the major Christological or Christ-centered passages of the New Testament, of the Bible. There are three other that I would consider the major ones. There's four of them. This is one of them. The other ones are this, and we're going to read them. The first one comes out of John chapter 1. You can turn there if you would like. John chapter 1, keep your finger there in Colossians. But this is the, one of the other major Christological passages. And you might say, why are we reading this? Because I want us to focus on Christ today. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If you jump down to verse 14, we find that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's maybe the first, chronologically speaking, the first major Christological passage. The next comes out of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's just a few pages before uh, our passage in Colossians. 
This is another moment where Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. If you don't want to turn there, at least write it down in the margin of your Bible next to Colossians 1, 15, so that you are reminded of these major Christological passages. You go, why does that matter? Because the theology of Jesus, when you are struggling, you come back to it. You come back to it. Philippians chapter 2, listen to what it says of Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the second one. The third one is what we just read in Colossians. That's the third major Christological passage. The fourth one comes out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And here it is, he is the radiance of his glory. And the exact, the exact, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in case you think he's on par with the angels, he says, having become as much better than the angels. This is Jesus. I don't know what kind of Jesus you had in your head. We have all kinds of images of Jesus, that idea of representation, images, icons, Some of you, you have baby Jesus. He's so cute. We got baby today. Baby Jesus. Baby Jesus is precious. Some of you have hippie Jesus. He's walking around with rope sandals and doing his thing in Galilee with long hair, healing people and doing that kind of thing, living from house to house and camping out. It's awesome. Some of you picture Jesus as crucified Jesus. He's hanging upon a cross, beaten, bloodied, and bruised. Some of you have resurrected Jesus. That's great. Some of you have action figure Jesus. He's out there in stores. You can buy them. Action figure Jesus. There's all kinds of ideas or images of Jesus that we can have. But what we know today is that our Jesus is he's not a baby, uh, and he is not uh, uh, walking on this earth with his earthly ministry. We know that he's not on the cross. We know that he is not in the tomb. We know that he is ascended on high and sits at the right hand of the Father awaiting his word to return to get you and to establish his rule and reign. That's Jesus. Paul is given a lofty picture, as was John and the author of Hebrews, of just who Jesus is. He is the image of God. In the Gospel of John, he writes, Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You have seen God Almighty. I don't want there to be any wondering in our church of, do we believe Jesus to be God? Yes. 100%. That's number one. Number two, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This specific phrase has caused lots of problems throughout church history. This specific phrase of 
well, if Jesus is the firstborn, what do we do with someone who's firstborn? If he was born, he was created. And if he was created, that means there was a time when he was not. And if he was not, then he can't be God because God is outside of time. What do we do with this? And it's something that people have taken and they've run with. In fact, a long time ago, fourth century AD, there was a man by the name of Arius. And you're saying, why does this matter? It matters. Listen, Arius was someone who was from Alexandria of Egypt, and he was teaching this idea because of this specific passage that for Jesus to be the firstborn, that meant that he was begotten, meaning that he was someone who, you know, if you're begotten, you've had a kid, that he didn't exist until he was born. So if there's a time when Jesus didn't exist, Arius began to preach that Jesus was the first created being. He was the top-notch one, but he was still a created being. But that would mean that there was a time when Jesus was not. So he can't be God because God had to create him, to make him. And it's actually a fairly compelling argument when you read this little phrase in and of itself, the firstborn of all creation. He's the first of creation. But then what do we do with this idea of what it means to be firstborn? I'll give you some examples. In the book of Exodus, it talks about whenever... uh, God is speaking with Moses, and it says, thus the Lord Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, there's a whole little table of nations long before Israel became a nation. They weren't the first nation, but yet yet God says to Moses, Israel is my firstborn. Psalm 89, this is speaking of David. God says, I shall make him my firstborn. But those of you that know your Bible history. David was not the first king. Saul was, in fact, the first king. David wasn't even the firstborn of his own family. I think he was like eight, something like that. Some of you know better than me. He was somewhere in that line, but nowhere near first. So it's almost that idea of, God, do you even know what firstborn means? Like you keep using it in weird ways and it just doesn't quite make any sense. But that's the funny thing about words. Words can be funny if you're you're not careful with them. You can break a word down so much so that you don't actually get closer to the meaning, you get further apart from the meaning. I'll give you an example. A driveway, what do you do with a driveway? You park on it. That doesn't make any sense. Seems like a driveway would be something that you would drive on and yet we park on it. What about a parkway? You drive on it. What is going on? It's backwards. What about sandwiches? There are neither sand or witches in that thing that I eat. Like there's something going on where you break down those words to where it's like, it doesn't mean what I think it means. Now, With the idea of firstborn, what God is speaking of there in Exodus and Psalm and even here in Colossians is that firstborn doesn't equal the firstborn, but rather that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, meaning that he is the preeminent one. It has less to do with first in time, more so first in rank. That's what he's talking about. Not first in time, but first in rank. That's what Paul is getting at in this, that he is the preeminent one. He is the one that even though Arius was, was, was preaching this, that there was a time where a council was gathered, the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century AD. And what they began to do is they began to take the teaching of Arius and said, you're, you're just off here. When it speaks of the firstborn, this is the one who inherits the one, all that God has. You remember in the Old Testament, Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first, Jacob was second, but Jacob is the firstborn, meaning that he is first in rank to receive the inheritance from his father. That's what's going on here. And so within that council of Nicaea, it's a really important one, go study it. They refuted the teachings of Arius and said, let's boil down this word of begotten. What does that really mean? And what they came to was that begotten means made of the same stuff. 
made of the same stuff. It's not that Jesus is of similar substance to God, but He is the same substance as God because He is the firstborn of all creation, and that refers to His rank. Even the title of this first part of our Colossian sermon series is The Supremacy of Christ. He is supreme. He is preeminent. As I said before, Jesus is everything. It's all about Jesus. That is what Paul is getting at. He is the preeminent one. And if Arius would have maybe taken a little bit of time to take that little phrase and read it with the next verse, contextually, you see that this is what Paul is actually teaching. He's not talking about firstborn in time. He's talking about firstborn in rank, preeminence, supremacy. Look at verse 16. We see that Jesus, number two, is the creator. Number two, Jesus is the creator. He says he's the firstborn of all creation, and then he continues that, for by him. Now, how could someone who is the firstborn of all creation in time be someone that could create (laughs) unless he's outside of time? This is, again, where Arius just begins to go astray. So we see Jesus, the creator. Note how many times it says all things. Repetition is a good thing in your Bible study time to see what is repeated. For by him all things were created, both on the heavens and on the earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now we're going to get a little bit nerdy here, but did you notice all the different prepositions that Paul used? In verse 16, he says, for by him all things were created. It was by Jesus that creation happens. And for that to happen, he has to be outside of creation, outside of time, in order for that to occur. He also says all things have been created through him. We see that played out even in the life and ministry of John and the life of the ministry of the author of Hebrews. Those two passages that we just read, that we just went through, you don't have to go back there, but in John chapter 1 verse 3, the author John says all things came into being through him. The author in the book of Hebrews, he specifically says, Through him, he also made the world. Jesus is responsible for creation. He's the agent of creation. And when he finishes up this in verse 16, he says, all things have been created through him and for him. A question I often get asked is, why am I here? Especially when it gets hard. Especially when life is difficult. You're not getting what you would maybe desire or want, and it's difficult. Why am I here? And Paul strips this all down to give us a glimpse of Jesus. Like, look at Jesus. And when you see Jesus, why am I here? You are here for him. You are here for Jesus. You are here for the Christ. That's why you are here. Your purpose isn't just to be busy and to do busy things or even good things. Your purpose is Jesus. That's who you are in Christ. You're here for him. Then he goes on in verse 17, and he continues, and he says that he's before all things. Jesus is the first over all creation because he is the creator. He is the preeminent one. He is supreme. But number three, he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. Have you ever tried to create something and keep it alive? Difficult. (laughs) Jesus, the creator, is also the sustainer. He has the power not only to create out of nothing, he has the ability to take that which has been created and to keep it, to have it to last. He holds, as it says in verse 17, in him all things hold together. In the same way that the nucleus of an atom holds all things together, so Jesus holds and sustains all things together in this world. Think of the different laws uh, that he has put into place within our world and within our, our universe where we live specifically. 
Water boils at what temperature? 212. Water freezes at what temperature? Exactly. There are certain things that are put in place that they would sustain. Even some of the greatest skeptics of God even existing will see that there is an order within this created universe. And it's not an order that just happened to be a bunch of gobbledygook mess that just went and then all of a sudden it blew up, it created, and then it sustains. Somehow this thing is able to sustain itself. And I see that as a creator who is outside of creation and time, enabled and powerful enough to be able to keep it and to maintain it and sustain it. So that those laws that we have, they stay true. It's not going to change in a few years. Jesus sustains it all. But what you have in these first few verses is you have Jesus as, if you will, supreme, preeminent over all creation. You want to know who he is? He's that big. He has that kind of authority. He has that kind of clout. So why would you ever need to add anything to Jesus for your life? But if he's that big and he's that awesome, then why in the world would he care about me? Have you ever been around people who are that big or that famous or that powerful and it's like, oh, I couldn't possibly say something to them? I mean, look at who they are. I remember I was at the Grand Canyon with Tiffany and uh, we were at a conference just in Phoenix and we decided to go to the Grand Canyon because we were close enough and I saw the president of our seminary that was also there. He was doing the same thing that we were doing and uh, I've, I'd visit with him a few times but I also was that person like, I don't want to bug him. Tiffany's like, hey, let's just go talk to him. I was like, no, 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 we, could, we, we, we shouldn't. We just need to leave him alone. He, he's the president. We could do that with God and for a lot of church history, there's been this sense, in some ways good, but in some ways not how God or Christ has designed it, of I couldn't possibly. Here's what I would tell you. Though he is grand and big, and he is to be feared, and not just in the reverential sense, he's that big, he's kind of scary, that we would recognize, man, he is that big, I couldn't possibly. How could insignificant little me on the blip of timeline eternity on this little blue dot in the universe possibly be able to go to the creator? Because he invites you. Do you reject the invitation of the creator? You're the creation. If he invites you, you go to him. And he says, you can come to me, as it says in Hebrews, you can come to me with boldness and confidence to my throne of grace and mercy. So I ask you, here's a little application, I lied to are you going to God? Or are you saying, God, I couldn't possibly? Or God, you don't know what I've done. Yes, he does. He knows exactly who you are, exactly what you've done, exactly what you're thinking. And some of you are like, I don't want to bother with this, this with him again. I, I couldn't possibly bring that to him. He invites you. And why would you not want, if you will, for, take the analogy, the biggest kid on the block, if you will, to be in his presence, to help you with your stuff. Man, rush to him. And this is how we see that this is possible, is because in verse 18, we not only see point four, Jesus is the sustainer, Jesus is the head. We see him as preeminent supreme of all things creation. But then it kind of, kind of zooms in to now, he's not just this big creator, the one who's the creator, He's also the head. It means there's this intimacy, this intimacy that he has with you to be engaged in your life. Look, look at what it says, verse, uh, verse um, 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. That means you're a part of him. 
I don't know how you can get more intimately acquainted. You're a part of Christ. He is the head. You are the body. He's leading the way, but you get to be a part of what it is that He wants to do for His good and for, or for your good and for His glory. Number six, Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. We're going quick, aren't we? See, you thought eight points, impossible. It's only 1048. I got like a lot of time. So Jesus is the head, but Jesus, number six, is also the firstborn from the dead. In verse 18, it says, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Underline this, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I told you before that the idea of firstborn, if you're not careful with it, does it mean first in rank or first in time? As we looked in verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. That has to do with first in rank. We read here, now he is the firstborn from the dead. It's as if Paul is using words very cleverly, and he is, to be able to describe the grandeur and the majesty of who Jesus is. And in this moment, it's, okay, so, so which is it? Is it first in time or first in rank? Yes. The answer is yes. He is the firstborn from the dead. Some of you will go, well, what about Lazarus and some of those other people that Jesus brought back from the dead? They died again. Jesus is alive forevermore. He is the firstborn from the dead. Why? I love that Paul says so that, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus is first. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is everything. I don't know how else to tell it to you. That's what this passage is all about. Number, number seven, Jesus is the deity. Jesus is the deity. He is divine. He is God incarnate. If you'll just look over maybe one page for you, maybe, maybe less, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we'll see this, or excuse me, verse 9, you'll see this in a couple of weeks. Yeah, a couple of weeks. Three. Uh, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, this was part of the big false teaching that had crept up within the church is that Jesus wasn't really God. And Paul is saying he absolutely is he is God incarnate. The fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. Jesus is God. I, I told you I was going to reference C.S. Lewis. I'll reference him again. I think this is a really interesting, interesting note. C.S. Lewis understood that the longing to know God cannot be satisfied merely through human efforts. You are not wise enough, smart enough, powerful enough just to figure it out. God had to do something. If, he gives an example. If Hamlet... You know, Hamlet, Shakespeare, some of you know your literature. Okay, Hamlet. Uh, if Hamlet were ever to know Shakespeare, Shakespeare would have to write himself into the story, right? Because he's a creation of Shakespeare. This is the claim at the heart of Christianity. The author of our story has written himself into the plot. For Lewis, the incarnation of Jesus, what we celebrate at Christmas... The incarnation of Jesus made sense of his religious longing. His desire pointed to something real, though something he could never reach on his own, and nothing on earth could satisfy. But God demonstrated his love in this. While we could never get to him, he came to us. The incarnation is something that we should never just go, oh, it's the Christmas season. It is such a big deal. That God would write himself into our story in such a personal way, to walk with us, to talk with us, to, to laugh and to eat and to bleed and to cry and to weep and to be 
killed, but to have the authority and the power to be able to be raised from the dead, it's a remarkable thing. Jesus is God incarnate. Number eight, Jesus is the reconciler. Jesus is the reconciler. He says, uh, it says it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, verse 20, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say whether things on earth or in heaven. What, what we find is this idea, again, how does the Creator, who we've already discussed, become the reconciler? Again, He inserts Himself into the story. He condescends. He's willing to stoop from the glories of heaven to become a part of His very own creation so that we could know Him. As Lewis said, it's in order for Hamlet to actually know Shakespeare, the author had to become a part of that story. And in verse 21, this is when finally Paul begins to become a little bit more personal. He, t- he goes from the grandeur of Jesus and the majesty of Jesus, and it's all about Jesus, and now he's starting to bring us in a little bit. And it says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. It's kind of like the comment that I think I shared with you guys early on. I think very, one of the first times I ever got to be with you, I made the comment that your sin isn't as bad as you think it is. It's actually worse. That's who you either are or who you were. In order for that to be either who you are or who you were, Jesus is in between those things. Because without Jesus, as precious as you are, and you are precious, created in the image of God, worthy of value and honor, as precious as you are, as the Scripture says, you are alienated, hostile in mind. Your mind, hostile, alienated to the things of God, engaged in evil deeds. What you dwell on, what you think on, you do. Your thoughts become your conduct. Your thoughts become your behavior. Your thoughts become those actions. And your actions were in evil deeds. You're like, I never killed anybody. I, thank you. I'm really glad that you haven't. But you have sinned. And it's egregious to holy God. Therefore, you are hostile and alienated from Him. But the beautiful thing, and it reminded me of our study in Ephesians in small groups last year, but the beautiful thing is in verse 22, yet He... You would stay hostile and alienated from God unless He, yet He, it's because of He choosing to do something for you, coming after you. Because in and of yourself, as it says in Romans, you might have enough of a knowledge that there is a creator by looking at the creation, as it says in Romans 1, but you also have enough knowledge to make you guilty before a holy God. But you need to know Christ and this is something that I woke up this morning and I was telling Tiffany, I said, I don't know how to quite articulate this to this group this morning other than just to try to articulate it, is this idea of why, God, did you come after me? Why was I not born at a different time, in a different place, in a different country, without the gospel of Jesus being ever-present. Yet I was born at this time, in this country, to that family, to these parents, and I've heard the gospel so many times, I can't even keep count. And there are those who are in other parts of this world who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And we go, won't God take care of them? He will. Not in the way that you might think or want. And that's hard. 
Because all of us are alienated and hostile from God because of our thoughts and our deeds. And without Jesus, and as he said in Colossians 1, it wasn't until the Colossians, they heard the gospel, they understood the grace, that they came to know in faith Jesus Christ. That is the only means of salvation. So that's why it gives us that impetus to don't just do church, be the church. There are people on your street and in your family that it's not going to be enough for them just to be kind about the things of God or to, to even say there is a God. They must know Jesus because it says right here, yet He has now reconciled you. It's only through Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, it's only through faith in Christ that you will be reconciled to the Creator. He does it through the cross. He makes peace. He reconciles. Yet now He has reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Some people have asked, again, the, the, the question, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, I think verse 23 kind of lets you know that. Is there evidence of having been reconciled? Is there evidence of reconciliation in your life? Of you were an enemy of God, now it's been, you've been reconciled, you've been brought back as a friend of God. That's what that is. You were enemies, now you are friends. Yet He has now reconciled you. There's going to be verse 23. The evidences of that is if you indeed continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And we might read this and say, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And you go, yeah, that's Paul's job. That's why we read 2 Corinthians 5 and what Dalton led us in. You are all ambassadors of reconciliation. It's not just Paul. It's not just the preacher. It's not just the elder. It's every one of you who says, I'm in Christ. You are a, a, to be an ambassador of reconciliation above all else. Sometimes we get so focused on what you do. What do you do? What's your career? That is supplemental to who you are. And who you are is one who has been reconciled by Jesus Christ. He's your first priority. Whatever you do, wherever you go, that's what your priority is. So, I'll finish with this. Kind of. Last quote from Lewis. He says, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he was really, if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as the great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus uh, said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing notion or nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. As I mentioned before, I believe verses 15 through 23 is a deep well of theology, specifically Christology. Who is Jesus? And you could walk away today and go, 
that bored me because you didn't give me what I wanted to fix my anxiety. And I would say, you weren't listening. The answer is Jesus. You need a greater glimpse of Jesus. I want my physical malady to be healed. I know you do. But in this fallen world, there will still be broken bones and there will still be sickness. But you know what's greater than? Jesus. I was thinking of a way to kind of finish our time. And uh, they don't need to come up yet, but, but there's a song that we're about to sing that couldn't be more fitting to what I want you to do with what you have heard. And I just kept thinking of this idea, and Paul's actually going to reiterate it in chapter 3 in a few more weeks, but that you would set your gaze up above, that you would set your gaze above, upward. And the, the, the example I have of this is some of you know that I enjoy getting to go to the beach and specifically getting to get on a paddleboard. If you don't know what a paddleboard is, just think of like a really long, thick uh, surfboard. And they give you a really big paddle, about as tall as a person, a little bit taller. And you take that thing out onto the ocean, and then you're able to stand on it. Or you can kneel on it, but I like to stand on it. And you can just kind of paddle, and you can go out. And sometimes the water's rough, and sometimes the water is just smooth as glass. And it's just something that I enjoy. It's a different way to engage with the ocean. Um, and this is the thing that I've discovered, and I by am, am by no means a, a pro, but one of the things I discovered early on is, is uh, it's really wobbly because you're on water, and you're trying to steady yourself. And I found the more I looked down, I was like, okay, you got to be a little bit further than shoulder width apart and kind of steady yourself. And I just kept falling into the water. And then something just kind of clicked for me. And what I found was I need to, I need to basically go from my knees and kind of hop up as best as I can, land. And I need to stop looking down. I just need to look straight ahead. Because if I look straight ahead, I'm looking to the horizon. I'm looking to a goal in which to kind of paddle toward and get toward. But if I keep my head down... I tend to fall. And the reason why I thought of this is because even a couple days ago, I was mowing before all the rain came. And I'm wanting to make pretty lines, and so I'm looking down. And I'm doing that thing. And I just thought of this sermon, and I was like, what if I just looked up? So often, we have almost a mentality in, the, in, in our country of just put your head down and just barrel through. That's like the worst advice. Just put your head down and just go. Sometimes we do this as individuals. We do this as companies or institutions. Sometimes we do this as a church. Just, just, let's just go. And as I've said before, it's not that there aren't things that we need to know how to do and, and, and what to do and all the specifics of it, but there's something about looking up ahead and being reminded of why we are doing what we are doing and to get a glimpse of the glory and grandeur of Christ, because what's not going to help you with anything is just sticking your head down and just saying, I'm going to barrel through. I'm going to get through this season. I'm going to get through this thing. It's no, you need Jesus, so look to him. Set your gaze upward on that which is more beautiful than what you're currently going through. And what I found was, though, even though the waves sometimes are a little bit more topsy-turvy, if I stayed looking forward, I could just kind of keep going, even though it was hard to keep balance in my life and to stay upright. And you know what happened is if I fall, I get up again, and I keep looking forward. 
This is what I want you to do tomorrow. This is the great takeaway that I want you to do, and it's incredibly, incredibly simple. Tomorrow morning, I want you to get up 30 minutes earlier than you normally do. You're like, you don't know how early I get up. I don't care. Get up 30 minutes earlier tomorrow as you start your week this Monday. Get up 30 minutes earlier, and I just want you to go, and I looked at the temperature. If you get up around 6 a.m., it's 59 degrees. What could be more beautiful than 59 degrees? Nothing. It is just the perfect temperature. At, at 7 o'clock, if some of you are a little bit later, like, man, I want 59. 7 o'clock, 59 degrees. 8 o'clock, 61 degrees. 9 o'clock, 63 degrees. For some of you late risers, I'm not giving you past 10, okay? 10 o'clock, 66 degrees. Hopefully you're up by then. I want you to get up 30 minutes earlier, and I want you to go outside somewhere because it's pretty enough. This is going to sound awful. I don't even want you to take your Bible. I definitely want you to leave your phone inside. I just want you to go outside, and I just want you to gaze up. And I just want you to be in the presence of the Creator, Jesus. I just want you to be in the presence of the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All of creation was created by him, for him, through him, and he's before it all. I want you to go to the one who is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. I want you to go to the one who has reconciled you, even though you were hostile in mind and in deeds, yet he laid down his life for you. And that what you wouldn't get up and do is go, I got to get busy, I got to do some things, I'm going to serve Jesus. Just be in his presence. We get so caught up in doing stuff. I got to do things. I got to do more. I got to read my Bible. I got to pray. I got to do this. Just be in his presence. And I can't help but wonder if you would take a time to be in the grandeur, the glory, the majesty of Jesus. If some of those things, if I want to be fed, I want to improve, I want less anxiety, I want less stress, I want less depression, if that doesn't begin to ebb away when you just come into his presence. Let him be your vision. Ladies, would you come on up? We're going to finish by singing, Be Thou My Vision. I didn't know they are going to sing this song. It's perfect. If you don't like this song, get over it. This song is beautiful. It is entirely fitting for today. And some of you right now, you have something very big, hard, pressing, difficult. We are not trivializing that. We're not saying that that is less than. Pain, loss, grief, suffering, hardship, whatever it may be, that is big. He's bigger. I'm asking you maybe even a kind of little practice run this morning before you leave and what you're going to do tomorrow morning. And I'll ask you in the email newsletter this week if you did it. That right now, don't think about where you're about to go eat. Don't think about, man, he went through eight points. Don't think about, just fix your gaze on Jesus. And maybe part of that is you sing this song with these. Maybe for some of you, it's you get on your face, get on your knees before the Lord. For some of you, it's just you're sitting and you're just praying and you're just in his presence. But I will tell you what, as I was driving here this morning, I said, Lord Jesus, if they could but get a glimpse of you today, they will be changed. I hope you see Jesus. So if you would, stand. Sing, worship, but fix your gaze on Jesus. Jesus.